0: Hello and welcome to Interopod with me, your host Hugh James. My job over the past 14 years or so has been to communicate science with the public, to take fairly complex scientific issues and make them understandable by everyone. Now that's pretty standard or straightforward to do with things like physics and chemistry and whatnot. It's a little bit harder to do with things like pandemics because they're super complicated. Um, we wanted more time to get this podcast up and running. The entire bank podcast is kind of designed to do a similar thing, but for lots of different things from travel to poverty to climate change to you know why we get flooding the way that we do that we've just had. So, right now, uh, on recording of this, COVID 19, the coronavirus is spreading worldwide. We have a global pandemic with over 200,000 cases, which is going to go up and up and up. The more we test, the more we um, the more that it spreads, those cases will go up. And I really wanted to to chat to someone who has a good knowledge of not only the the science behind this, the the epidemiology and the way that viruses work, but also someone who understands the the more of a global picture. Today's guest is a biologist who's currently working on a book all about aging. He wasn't doing that when I first met him. He was a physicist back then who was in a science competition that was looking at 3D glasses and how 3D glasses work, but explaining how complex things work in a really understandable way for everyone. And then made this unusual career jump from that PhD in physics to biology and the biology of aging. He does science on TV and campaigns and runs some really smart science communication strategies on how we fund science more and how we understand science so the reason i want to talk to him is because he's got a good understanding of what this pandemic means for us in the uk right now what the science of it is but also what it means for us in the future how are you guys doing down there at the moment
1: oh man it's, it's very difficult so my wife uh she's a doctor and honestly you know we're just thinking about it 24 7 she's been dealing with covid patients Um, She was actually exposed to one of the first UK COVID patients. So at that time, we had to self-isolate for 14 days. We've had uh, a lot of time in quite a small flat to stew about this whole thing and sort of try and work out what the outside world's thinking of it. And I think the healthcare system... how long ago was that? um, That was early in March. So we were, yeah, we got off self-isolation last weekend. They actually changed the guidelines on the last day of our self-isolation from 14 days to seven days. So we needn't have done the last seven days.
0: Well, it's good that you're getting so much uh, work done anyway. So at the moment, we've got, we're in a global pandemic, but it goes by a few different names. Mm -hmm. COVID-19, coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2. Which one should should we be calling it across the board? Does it really matter?
1: I think this is something that some experts are like getting far too hung up on. I've just started calling it COVID because honestly, that's not ambiguous. So the problem with the word coronavirus is there are loads of different coronaviruses, right? So there are um there are over 200 viruses that cause the common cold and some of those like some subset of those are coronaviruses there are other coronaviruses that affect different animals and this is just one coronavirus so it's not really right to call it coronavirus that said the cat's a bit out of the bag everyone's calling it that so it's a bit hard to stop so um, yeah, I'm just happy to call it COVID because that's the disease that's caused by that virus.
0: So I suppose the, the, the real difference, right, is that we have got a family of, di- of viruses called the coronaviruses. Uh, COVID-19 is coronavirus disease mm-hmm. 2019. That's when it when it came about. And that's the disease that's caused by SARS-CoV-2, which is the actual, actual virus. actual specific
1: right? virus, yeah, because obviously this is another coronavirus is SARS, which I guess we'll talk about in a minute. And uh, so that was SARS-CoV or SARS-CoV-1. Whereas now SARS-CoV-2 is the um, yeah is the current coronavirus outbreak,
0: the second instalment. Yeah. WHO I think just last week, as as we're recording this, um, declared it as a as a pandemic. Um, what is the difference between that epidemic and a pandemic?
1: A pandemic is defined as a disease that's spreading locally in multiple areas of the world. So you might remember, you know, it's, it's just a few weeks ago now, but you know, in those uh, in those simple times, there were outbreaks of the disease that have been confirmed all around the world. But most of those cases, we thought, could be traced back to the place where the disease originated in uh, in this province in China. Um, but what obviously we didn't know at that time is the disease was already starting to spread locally. So people who'd come from the parts of the world that were affected by the disease were then passing it on to their contacts in their communities. And as soon as there's that sustained transmission from person to person in countries away from the place where the disease originated, the WHO starts calling it a pandemic.
0: doesn't really change much. The the virus is still kind of passing around um... Regardless of if they they label it a pandemic or not, that that does kind of change the response of, you know, do you try and quarantine it or do you try and mitigate for the, the spread of it? So we've got this virus that's being spread globally. How is it normally transmitted between people?
1: So this is a virus. It's a what's called a respiratory virus that so affects your lungs. It affects your the you know cells in your throat and that kind of thing. And the way it's primarily spread is by respiratory droplets, which is a terribly complicated term. It just means the drops that come out when you cough or you sneeze. And actually, in the case of COVID, um, it's mainly coughing. You don't really get sneezing as a symptom. So when you cough, you sputter out a few of these droplets, and that means that they can spread onto all the you know into the air around you, and then ultimately onto the surfaces all around you. And if you cough on your hand, you can get the droplets on your hand. And actually, it's thought that the primary means of communicating this disease is, you know, if you cough into your hand or you cough onto a surface, the virus can survive on that surface for a very long time. And if someone else then comes and touches that surface afterwards, they don't wash their hands, they touch their face, they touch their eyes, their nose or their mouth, basically the points where the virus can get inside and then it can infect you. And uh, so the process continues. So
0: that's a really neat introduction into, you know, what we're facing with the coronavirus at the moment. I think it's handy for people to know, why this started spreading in the way that it did we know how it's spreading but why is it spreading in the way that it did and where did it come from so starting in the Wuhan province uh, of China probably I think the local research you might be able to back me up on this is that it might have passed from bats into pangolins and then into humans I've seen studies recently suggest it, it came directly from pangolins
1: yeah and I think actually I've seen some studies saying it came directly from bats so I think there's quite a lot of uncertainty about what the animal reservoir actually was but uh, yeah, so in Wuhan, um, and in fact, in quite a few different regions of China and all different parts of the world, people go to what are called wet markets and they buy bush meats. It's effectively you know animals that have been caught in the wild and it can be things like bats and pangolins, and they go ahead and eat them. and the problem is that um, you know these, these animals are exposed to entirely different families of viruses and diseases. Uh, to the sort of domestic animals that we breed on farms and so when those animals particularly they're all brought together in a very small space so you know bats and pangolins and all these other animals can share the viruses around and when a virus starts off in animals um, sort of roll back and do a little bit of virus biology here if you're a virus and you want to infect uh, an animal or a human what you need to do is you can't actually reproduce on your own you need to find a way to break inside the animal or the human cells and the way that the coronaviruses do that is they've got these little spike proteins all over the surface of the virus, and they um, effectively act like a sort of lock and a key. They're the key, and they come up to one of your cells, join up with a protein on the surface of the cell, which is the lock. They undo that lock, and they work their way into the cell. Now, because obviously animals and humans are different, um, we have different proteins all over the surface of our cells. So a lot of viruses that can infect animals can't infect humans, <laughs> but Um, what can happen is that the virus can mutate. It can have small changes to those proteins. And that can mean that it can become better or worse at infecting humans or better and worse at infecting different animals. And if you have loads of animals, loads of humans all together in a very small space, that just gives loads of opportunities for a virus to sort of jump across the the species barrier and have a go. And, you know, maybe 99 times out of 100, I I don't don't have an actual figure for it, but, you know, quite often that's just going to fail. But you just require one of these sort of chance events and it can, the virus can start, you know, can infect a person. Often those viruses then can't spread from person to person. But then, you know, eventually, if you have enough tries at this, the virus has enough rolls of the dice, it can get to a point where it can transmit to human to human. And that's how you end up with one of these pandemics.
0: And we've seen precedent for this before, right? This isn't the first time that we've had these zoonotic viruses that uh, come from animals and get passed into humans. It's not the first time we've we've seen that we've seen swine flu bird flu and a, and a bunch of others so there is precedent we, we've seen this coming for a long time right it's, it's always a question of uh, when not if
1: yeah and i mean i'm the thing that i'm just really astonished about as we sort of watching this crisis spiral out of out of all of our control um is how widely predicted this has been so quite famously there's a, a ted talk that was done by bill gates in 2015 predicting admittedly with pandemic flu rather than a pandemic coronavirus but exactly the same scenario as we're seeing play out now and um, there was even an exercise done by the who i think in 2018 they uh, were trying to sort of game out what would happen again in a potential pandemic and they came up with something called disease x and they said it was probably going to be spread from um you know an animal to a human and then it was going to start moving throughout our transportation networks around the world it was going to cease to be able to be contained it was going to be respiratory They, they basically completely described the outbreak that we're having now several years before it happened and, you know, pandemic experts have been going on about this for such a long time. And yet somehow, you know, there's this this, this huge shock when you know, Bill Gates called it the most predictable disaster in, you know, that we can look look forward to in the future.
0: Yeah, you speak to like the world's leading scientists and you ask them you know what are you most afraid of like take it back a couple of months before this is the thing that we're most afraid of it's not like nuclear disaster or an asteroid hitting or these big things that we that are world ended events it's pandemics you know when you look at things like SARS and MERS you know 770 people died with SARS 850 died with MERS we've got other kind of precedents for how many people died doing what but why why is this one so much so different and why couldn't we stop it
1: I think that's a really good question and that's you know, that's something that epidemiologists and virologists are going to be picking over for years but if you take the example of MERS, MERS was a virus that again it's a coronavirus, it was transmitted from camels to humans this time, it's Middle Eastern respiratory syndrome because that's where it arose and the thing with MERS is it's much much deadlier actually so um, I think it's about 10% the fatality rate if you get MERS you've got a 10% chance of dying whereas as, as far as we know at the moment COVID has about a 1% fatality rate so it's you know different, just a completely different scale. But the good thing about MERS, although it is so deadly, it's much less contagious. So it wasn't just you know, spreading through the population like wildfire. And that's, that's basically what allowed it to be contained. It meant that by very carefully monitoring all the people who'd come into contact early on in the disease, they were able to isolate them all, separate them all, and you know ultimately bring the disease under control. Whereas that's clearly something that hasn't worked in the case of COVID.
0: there's there's a lot there's lots of different reasons to be frustrated and worried and anxious about this there's a lot of misinformation out there a lot of people saying it's not that bad Mm -hmm. that if you look at things like seasonal flu or you look at the 1918 flu where 40 to 50 million people died um, or you take the bubonic plague where 200 million people died people are saying oh it's not that bad only x amount of people have died from this. It's the wrong way to look at it. Is the is the bill and all of it because we're in we're on this curve at the moment where it's going up and up and up. And exp- this exponential growth. Mm-hmm. Where we we're, we're really in the first few months of what, this. Mers is still you still get outbreaks here and there uh, at at the moment. But swine flu kind of 200,000 and that's done with people plague 200 million it lasted a long time. It's difficult to see where this will stop at the moment.
1: Yeah, I think this is basically this is maths that our brains aren't built to comprehend because at the moment what we're going through with covid is the maths of exponential growth uh in a lot of the countries in the west we're seeing a doubling in the number of cases every three or four days so you can get these numbers they can start really small but then you know in a few months or even just a few weeks they can get incredibly large and they can get to the point where they can completely overwhelm the healthcare system even starting from quite a low base so i think it is just really, really difficult to communicate the risks here. I think one of the reasons we're so complacent about it is you you look at something like MERS, it's only killed, you know, you say 800 people. Um, I think a lot of us have watched things like SARS um, and things like MERS. They sort of emerged in other countries. They've somehow been brought under control in a way that we haven't really, like, grappled with in, in the Western countries that haven't been so affected. The same with Ebola. It's just this thing that sort of happened in Africa and we haven't really, you know, sort of got our hands dirty in the media talking about that situation and so you just think it's this weird thing that happens in other countries but actually what you don't see is what could have happened if those controls hadn't been put in place if you know these huge efforts hadn't been made to try and make sure the virus didn't break out and what we're seeing now is you know as those attempts to control have failed we've seen this this much worse scenario where suddenly the spread is at the moment almost completely uncontrolled and
0: if we're looking at what we can learn from past outbreaks I suppose it is that, right? It's the paradox of preparation that if you instill these really aggressive social distancing tactics quite early uh, and shutdowns of things like schools and um, universities and restaurants and supermarkets, that it seems hyperbolic to begin with. But you know, you're getting out in front, you're being proactive instead of reactive towards that virus. And so, a great speech from the um, one of the guys at WHO, which was if we learn anything from the Ebola outbreak, which uh, the Americans, especially um, Obama, kind of put preparations in place really early on, really aggressive, aggressively to make sure that that was stamped out super quickly. This seemed hyperbolic, like looking back, but that's the point, right? Like in a year's time, if we look back at this, so it would have been lovely if we looked back at this and said, oh, well, we completely overreacted. That's the point. We're supposed to look back and say we've overreacted, not look back and say, well, we didn't do enough.
1: Yeah, it's a really difficult one because I, I feel um, I'm quite hesitant at the moment about specifically criticising the government's response because although I've got reservations, I feel like I'm not an epidemiologist and I've not got all the information that they've got access to. But that said, like in the more general principle, I think you're absolutely right in that it is exactly the paradox of preparation. It looks like you've done a huge amount of stuff and then everyone asked what the problem was. And to take a non-viral example, um, there's the Millennium Bug, which was this idea that in the year two thousand, um, a lot of computers, because they were built on software that had been running, you know, in its most primitive forms for decades, only stored the year in two digits, and so there was this risk that all the computers were going to roll over from thirty-first December nineteen ninety-nine to the first of January. 1900 and that was going to cause you know global chaos navigation systems were going to go down power grids were going to be all over the place and you know this was trailed in the media for months maybe even years you know beforehand and everyone was expecting this huge cataclysm and I think in the end there was one you know one boat in the Adriatic Sea just off Italy that got a bit lost basically everything was kept under control and so everyone had this idea that you know it was a complete non-event it had been a total you know media fabrication but actually the reason that didn't happen is because you know I don't know how many thousands of human hours of preparation were put into going meticulously through that code and updating it and making sure that it wouldn't fall over in that situation and all of that is largely missed by the general public because it's not something that most of us were involved in you know i wasn't i was 15 (laughs) so i clearly wasn't involved in that but i do remember all the media coverage and if you don't dig into the details and realize the amount of preparation that went into making that a non-event you don't realize why nothing happened
0: and i suppose you know when looking at governments and big organizations that is the kind of preparation that they're there to do, right? Like, it shouldn't be down to the general public to think in advance of for things like pandemics and the millennium bug um, and other events like that. This is why we have things like governments in place. But when it comes to to our level then, um, what is it that we can be doing to to stop the spread of this in terms of, you know, we hear so much of washing our hands, of not, not being in uh, large groups of people. When they've said that they want... To cancel those kind of events, is that the right thing, in
1: your opinion? I think, as individuals, and again, I'm hesitant on criticising the government because I think the most important thing we need to do now is is come together and try and make sure that we all deal with this in a sort of unified, systematic way. We can pick up the political pieces afterwards because this is just such a crisis. It's really, really important that we all act as one. But I think if you're an individual, the single most important thing you can do is physical distancing i'm trying to avoid the phrase social distancing because it sounds quite isolating but the point is you need to be physically far apart that really describes what you need to do if you're physically close to someone you're at risk of either catching the virus from them or giving them the virus and one of the best pieces of advice i've heard is just imagine that you have the virus and you don't want to pass it on and that's absolutely crucial advice Because the way that this virus is spreading, the reason it's spreading so fast, it's doubling every three or four days, is that every person who gets the virus gives it to two or three people. And if you keep on doing that every few days, what you find is at the end of the month, if you you say you had the virus and you went out in public and you then, because of your actions, spread it to two or three people. By the end of that month, you will personally be responsible for 400 people being infected. And looking at a 1% mortality rate, that means there are going to be four dead people, which is basically your fault. And I know that sounds harsh, but that is, you know, that's statistically true. And if we can reduce the number of people that you can um, pass that disease on to, so say we reduce it from two and a half on average to 1.25, so just, you know, you catching the disease, you only give it to one and a bit other people on average. Then rather than infecting hundreds of people, by the end of the month, there'll be about 10 people infected. And it's just this is the maths of exponentials that's so hard to imagine if you can cut down your social contact by a factor of two you can dramatically reduce the spread of the disease and if you can cut down your social contact by 75 percent or 90 percent then what you can do is get to a situation where every person who catches the disease passes it on to less than one other person now that sounds a bit sort of counterintuitive but the maths of it is if i on average only pass it on to half a person the disease is going to die out because as soon as you're giving it to less than one person per person infected the virus doesn't you know runs out of hosts effectively and so the crucial thing that you can do is to stay if you possibly can if you can work from home work from home don't go to the pub don't go to the hairdresser you know don't go to the restaurant don't go and see your mates it's it's really hard but we're all going to have to pull together and do this and you know thankfully we live in the age of the internet we live at a point where you can ring me up from wales and we can do a podcast even though we're separated by hundreds of miles and Thankfully, we're in that age. You know, we, we're being asked to sit at home and watch Netflix. We're not being asked to do anything hugely bold here. But by physically distancing ourselves from other people, you can literally save lives.
0: You're right. It, it is so counterintuitive to to think about, you know, exponential growth and how viruses spread. It's so counterintuitive to think that the best thing I can do for this is nothing and stay at home. You know, when we've got people on the front line that they have to go in and, and deal with mm-hmm. it, um, the best thing we can do is just... Just limit that contact. Obviously, there's other stuff you can do as well. I'm endlessly fascinated by the like by the fact that we're being told to wash our hands uh, a lot, and I keep seeing these people going, oh, like you should wash your hands five to ten times a day. And I'm like, I wash my hands five to ten times a day anyway. <laughs> I'm worried that people think that that's a lot uh, to to wash your hands. But again, going back to not only knowing how to do something or what to do, but knowing why to mm. do it if they know the virology behind how soap kills mm-hmm. viruses, they're more likely to do it for that full 20 seconds. So
1: when, when you've got soap in your hands, what happens mechanically within that virus? So soap is a very special kind of chemical, and it's um, it's made up of individual molecules which have one end that really likes water and one end that really likes fat. That's why washing up liquid breaks up grease on your washing up, for example. So you know you put on your washing up liquid um, on your really horrible greasy dinner plate after dinner. One end of the molecule sticks to the grease on your plate, the other end of the molecule sticks to the water, and so the grease gets washed away with the soap. And that's exactly the same way that um, soap washing your hands works. So we're actually quite lucky with this coronavirus because it's protected by a lipid layer. And what that means is it's effectively a little fatty bubble that surrounds the virus. And that means that if you put on you know regular soap, regular detergent, then it can do its good work. It can break apart the fat, effectively like breaking up the grease on your dinner plates, and it can rip the viruses apart. But crucially, that chemistry takes a bit of time to work. And also, you know, your hands, they're 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 very sort of bubbly surfaces. You've got to spend a bit of time to work the soap into every single one of those tiny little cracks or every wrinkle on your hands. You've just got to make sure that every single part of the area of your hands is covered, which is surprisingly hard. I, I watched a video on hand washing a couple of weeks ago and I was, you know, there was one thing that I hadn't thought of to do, which was to rub my, the tips of my fingers and hopefully a little bit of the underside of my nails on the palm of my hand. Because it's just so, it's so weird. You watch these videos and that's not how I'd been washing my hands the, for the rest of my life. And you realise that if you're going to be thorough, if you're going to get every single nook and cranny and make sure that every one of those viruses on your hand is ripped apart, you've got to take your time, you've got to be really thorough.
0: And I think, again, that's, that's counterintuitive because... I think people assume that when you wash your hands with soap, what you're actually doing is getting them off your hands, and you're washing them down down the sink. Which happens with a, a few of those viruses, but the majority of them do get ripped apart by the uh, by the soap. So, good hygiene, good social distancing, those are actually two really simple measures that we can do as the public to actually stop the spread of viruses. Does
1: panic buying help? I really don't think so. I think the. Tr- <laughs> The problem is that obviously we're hoping that the supply chains, the the huge collection of mechanisms that keep our global economy flowing, aren't going to completely break down. And the problem is, I was, I was thinking about this in terms of loo roll, like um, maybe we buy a, a new packet of loo roll once every couple of months. Now, if you imagine the supermarket's got enough so that everyone goes in and buys it you know, once every month or two, then it only takes a small fraction of people to buy all their loo roll on one day for suddenly the whole shop to be run you know, to run out. So that's what's going on here. And it's unfortunately, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because then when everyone else starts buying Lou roll and you realise that, well, you're going to run out in a couple of weeks, you want to make sure that you've got your Lou roll in time, this whole thing just sort of spirals out of control. So the panic buying we're seeing now really isn't that effective.
0: There are other things that people can not do um, or myths that they can avoid whilst uh, doing this. And I've seen so many good ones out there, Uh, so many bad ones out there. What's a few of the top ones that, that you've seen come across, those myths you'd like to dispel?
1: I've seen quite a lot of um, just unevidenced treatments. Like I've seen some people saying that heat kills the virus. And often these things have a grain of truth in them, right? So it is true, coronavirus is quite a delicate virus, but actually all viruses and bacteria ultimately are killed by heat. That's why cooking food can act to sterilise it. Because the proteins, the, the, this lipid layer that make them up are destabilised when they get hot um so there's a grain of truth in saying that coronavirus is killed by heat but the sort of heat you'd need if you were to try and apply that to yourself would be damaging to your own body but nonetheless there are people suggesting that if you you know if you go into a sauna you can have coronavirus cured or if you breathe in warm vapor now these things might actually be quite nice when you've got a respiratory illness it's not as that's necessarily going to be physically unpleasant but it's probably not going to do an awful lot to curtail the spread of the virus
0: all the best myths do have that grain of truth in them, yeah. right? So I saw one that was get rid of coronavirus on your clothes by sitting in the sun for an, uh, an mm-hmm. amount of time, which, you know, sometimes UV do kill viruses and we use it for that purpose. But the type of UV that's coming down from the, that's getting down to the, the floor uh, and the amount of total energy that we get from the sun, just that's not a true so thing, that- right?
1: I found this quite hard because I, I wanted to understand this. I've got a UV torch. I'm a you know I'm a scientist. I've got my own UV torch at home, obviously. So I started trying to do a bit of googling to try and find out what intensities and wavelengths of UV light you need to kill viruses and bacteria. And honestly, there's not a whole lot of information out there that I could find. I'm sure if you're you know a micro- microbiologist, you have much access to much better information. But the way a lot of the um, sort of commercial germicidal UV works is it's what's called UVC. So it's very, very short wavelengths of UV light. And those wavelengths are actually blocked by the atmosphere. However, it is definitely the case that that even the UV that you get outside is to some extent um, germicidal, so it can kill viruses and bacteria. So one example is that... Um, I believe quite a big public health innovation in developing countries has been to encourage people to get contaminated water and put it into an ordinary two-litre transparent, you know, pot bottle basically, and sit it outside in the sun. If you leave it out in the sunlight for long enough, then that does kill some of the bacteria inside it and makes the water much safer to drink. So, yeah, I don't I don't think we know enough about this coronavirus yet to say, like, how long you'd need to sit in the sun and how effective that would be. And just the, the other thing is just the practical problems with it, right, because when you're sitting in the sun are you going to like turn yourself over like a piece of meat cooking (laughs) in order to make sure that every single fold on your clothes has been exposed to the relevant amount of uv for the relevant amount of time so i don't know it's just it's again as you say, there's a grain of truth in it but it's just much more complicated than it appears at first sight
0: and those are two just great examples of examples of misinformation that um, we see out there at the moment and i'm constantly kind of on social media on on a different people if you so if you don't know that it's definitely true just don't start kind of putting it out there i've seen other ones drinking children's urine uh is is great uh, for it i assume that's something to do with the ammonia <laughs> i'm not even sure if there's a grain of truth it just sounds the, weird <laughs> exactly yeah you're right uh but you know myths often come from somewhere kids kids aren't really as affected by coronavirus as uh, the in terms of symptoms as as elderly people yeah, it's come it's, from that. It could be that it's airborne which um you know maybe it might be true for the initial sneeze or cough from someone but there's no real I truth in the fact that it hangs
1: in the air like measles or mumps it's right. Really, it's really interesting this one actually because i've seen a few articles about this and again it's like it's quite ambiguous the initial reports that i saw all seem to say it's not airborne but the problem is the definition of airborne is quite contested amongst virologists because if you imagine you cough right the particles of you know saliva and mucus that come out of your mouth are very small some of them could be literally millionths of a meter across and the the question as to whether a virus is airborne or not is basically a question about how big those cores are and if the particles are large they'll fall to the ground and so the assumption with coronavirus for a while was that because the cough uh, because the particles you cough out are quite large they'll just fall onto the ground or onto the surfaces around you and that's why it's primarily transmitted um, by people touching stuff rather than by people being directly coughed on. But I've since seen some work that suggests it can stay in the air for up to three hours. But as you say, there's this then this sort of other extreme of viruses like measles, which are genuinely airborne. They 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 come in these tiny particles. They can hang in the air for you know God knows how long. This this really staggered me. That the R naught, this statistic that's often used to describe how uh, contagious a virus is. So we said earlier that a coronavirus patient will infect, on average, two to three more people. So we say it's got an R naught of two to three. Measles, because it's airborne, has an R naught of eighteen which is just staggering you can see why until we developed the measles vaccine that this was just one of the most you know ubiquitous diseases because if one person can pass it on to 18 more people it doesn't take very long before literally everybody has it you know one person passes it on to 18 people those 18 people then affect about another 400 it, it just multiplies out of control
0: there are other viruses as well things like chickenpox, that people will be you know very familiar with that the majority of us catch that when uh, when we're younger it is very very contagious but at the same time the mortality rate for it is very very low so you've got these two conflicting numbers that is the transmissibility of it but also the the percentage of people who will die from it, the fatality rate so
1: it can also vary quite a lot by age because if you're a kid and you get chickenpox, um it's actually you know as you know not very serious you get an itchy rash for a week and it's a bit nasty but it's fine but if you get chickenpox as an adult then it can be much much more serious and you've probably heard of shingles which is this disease that happens if you've had chickenpox as a kid um actually although you can obviously recover from the disease a few of those viruses will tend to Sort of go into hibernation. They go and hide out in your nerves, and while they're hiding there, they just kick around doing nothing. They can literally stay there for decades, and then if you have a period of stress, or if you have a period where your immune system's suppressed for some reason, or even if you just get old because your immunity tends to decrease with age, then the chickenpox virus can come back out again, and it causes this incredibly painful rash. And because it's been um, in this particular nerve, it'll cause this rash in one particular sort of region of your skin that's that's supplied by that nerve so you get these weird regions of your body which just have this incredibly painful rash on them so this is just a disease that's it's very minor in children but much more serious in adults and although obviously coronavirus is not is not the same as chickenpox again that's something where it looks as though the sort of fatality the incidence of serious illness in kids is much lower but it's much much more serious particularly in older people
0: there's a, a lot of good information on information is, is beautiful.net which is a uh, a lovely way of presenting this kind of information that's a couple of weeks old now um but still that data kind of holds true that you know for the those age 60 plus are most at risk you see over 80 is a 14, 8, 14.8% mortality rate uh, one in six uh, people 1 in 12 for 70 to 79 you go down to 0 to 9 and it's basically
1: zero percent yeah so that, that that data is from um the, the original outbreak in china i think yeah i think they didn't have a single death in children if I'm, I'm right in saying um i think there may have been one observed now but yeah it's still very very low
0: which again leads to that kind of grain of truth and um, misconceptions and whatnot that's that kids can't get the coronavirus and that it doesn't affect young, healthy people, which we know that it does and they can pass it on. They can still get it and they can still be transmitters of it, but they're less likely to be seriously harmed by the symptoms. Yeah,
1: I think we're still learning an awful lot about this. Um, I was quite depressed, you know, even a few weeks ago, again in those those sort of lovely times before we knew how bad this was going to get, where people were sharing that exact Data that you were just talking about, and being like, "Oh, it's fine; it doesn't really affect young people." And firstly, that really depressed me because obviously, it's not about you; it's about the fact that you could pass it on to someone who could pass it on to their sister, who could pass it on to their boss, who could pass it on to their aging grandma, and then you know she ends up in t- intensive care and dies. But I think the second thing is, um we, you know, you, you see those kinds of numbers, and you assume because it's data, it's cast in stone but that isn't always the case because the outbreak in China was absolutely chaotic. You know, they weren't able to test everybody they wanted to test. The hospitals were overwhelmed and you can never be totally sure whether, you know, even if they had the absolute perfect data set, whether that data set would transfer to, you know, the UK or the USA, got different culture, different healthcare system, so many different factors. It's just really not 100% clear and some of the reports that are coming in at the moment suggest that actually you know there are there is a subset of young people and we don't know what is different about them if anything who do get a really severe form of this disease you're getting 30 year olds who are you know marathon runners who end up in intensive care on oxygen so you know it's it's a bit of a myth to imagine that because you're young you're immune but as you say it's got this grain of truth it's clearly less serious and there are fewer serious consequences in younger people but some of the data coming out of Italy some of the data coming out of the US is really leading us to question you know, what is the hospitalization rate? What is the rate of serious illness? What is the fatality rate for different age groups? And I think that's something we're just gonna to have to wait and see.
0: I think that's a really nice lead into what different governments are doing around the world to slow the spread. I think we've all got past the point of we can confine this to one geographical location now that it's a it's a pandemic. But you're right that in place like Wuhan, China, they had sixty million people on lockdown around that province, which is something that you probably or definitely couldn't do in a more democratic country the reason they can do that is because they are an authoritarian regime that just can do that you can put 60 million people on lockdown and in quarantine and try and stop that spread right so do you think that there's any blame to lay at the feet of the the chinese government on not acting early enough not spreading the the word early enough and how did they do with containing that virus
1: i think it's a really difficult question because there was there was clearly something of a cover-up at the beginning because some doctors raised the alarm of this SARS-like virus and it sounds like they were just shut down by local party officials um because they didn't want to spread panic and then it's obviously turned out this is incredibly incredibly serious but that said from what I've seen I'm not a China expert They've shared a lot of data. The WHO teams that go in say the data they're sharing is correct. Just yesterday, China put out a a manual for other doctors. It was basically like, this is the best practice that we've observed in our experience dealing with COVID. This is how you should triage patients. This is how you should try and treat them. So it's just, it's very, very complicated and hard to come out with like a clear... China aren't the good guys China aren't the bad guys apart from anything else this virus is out of all of our control it's not a it's not been created by some you know someone to advance a particular political ideology it's a crisis that we all have to confront and i think it you know it's going to lead us to ask a lot of questions about what the responsibilities of governments should be in these situations what kind of authoritarian measures should be permitted in these kinds of situations i was having a discussion on twitter a few weeks ago about this the chinese introduced an app that would allow um that basically gave you a little qr code on your screen and if it was red you could not travel you were locked down if it was yellow you could move around a certain distance under certain circumstances if it was green you could get on public transport everything was fine and at the time i was worrying about the obviously there's huge privacy implications to that They're, they're basically tracking people's movements they're using an an you know a non-public algorithm to work out who is and isn't allowed to travel based on whether they're in proximity with a known covid case or something we don't know entirely what could that be used to stop political dissidents traveling you know what are they going to do with the data afterwards are they going to stop collecting that data there are loads of big questions but as this virus spreads more and more you have to ask yourself what level of infringement of my civil liberties am i prepared to take on board if it's going to start saving lives and there was a study that i read that came out a couple of days ago by some scientists i think at oxford who suggested that they'd done some mathematical modeling and if we had some reasonably large percentage of the population with a phone app that would track all our movements by gps that would send out bluetooth pings to try and find out what phones you are nearby and then if we had a really extensive covid testing program so we actually knew who had been infected as soon as that positive Test had been made, you could then send a message to everyone whose phone had been in proximity to this other person and tell them all to stay at home. And they worked out that by this, you know, with a reasonable degree of effectiveness, we could get the disease under control. And obviously, there are huge moral, ethical, political, social questions about whether that's a good idea. But as the virus, you know, just starts running more and more rampant through Western civilization, we're going to have to ask the question about whether these sort of measures are justified.
0: And that's, a, I think, a really good point that what we do from a scientific point of view to quell the spread of the virus and what we do from a social point of view like what is acceptable from either one because the economy still needs to, to chug along people still need to be social people still need to go around their, their daily lives we're seeing different countries put place different measures on different populations based on the kind of ideology around the area what they are willing to do Um, In the US, we've seen a very different approach to it. In Italy, we saw a very different approach to it. One of the best cases of stopping the spread of the virus Mm -hmm. is South Korea, where they just did mass testing really early. So, you know, 10,000 people a day. I think they're up to about 250,000 tests at the moment. Is that a model we should be modeling ourselves on? Is it a model that we could actually do in the UK? I'm not too sure.
1: I, I really think we all need to draw, draw behind the government at this point and try and you know say that we're all going to do this together and try and fight this virus. But if I was a journalist at one of their press conferences, all my questions would be about why aren't we following the South Korean model it's not to say that that is better and that's definitely the right solution but what I want to understand is what's stopping us from getting there and currently we're not in a situation where that would work because we've got maybe 50, 100,000 people in the UK with COVID is what the chief scientific officer suggested a couple of days ago I think he said 55,000 but that was a couple of days ago so it's going to have gone up since then and you know, by the time this goes out there'll be a, you know maybe a few tens of thousands more we're not in a situation where we could do what the Koreans are doing at the moment because every time someone gets the virus they're doing this contract tracing and it's it's really labor intensive right you have to say you have to ask the patient who you know where have you been and who have you been in contact with and then you have to manually effectively just ring those people up and say you might have been in contact with a covid patient please self-isolate so it's a very very labor intensive process and if you've got you know hundreds of thousands of people walking around with the disease they've potentially been in touch with millions you know say you see 10 people in a given day it could be a million people you have to get in touch with that's just not scalable but the real question is could we lock everything down now for you know maybe a few weeks or a month or two get the numbers down to a situation where we've only got a few hundred or maybe a thousand cases and then start implementing these You know, less draconian measures start to sort of take the brakes off what we're doing and allow people to move around a bit more, but just keep it under surveillance, start this contact tracing. And the other thing that these Asian countries like South Korea, like um, Singapore, like Taiwan are doing is having temperature monitoring stations absolutely everywhere. So if you get on a bus, if you get on a train, your temperature is being taken. If you go into a public building, your temperature is being taken. And anyone who's got a fever... They aren't taken to a regular hospital, they're taken to a special COVID station and there they're very quickly given a test, very quickly given a a chest CT, which is an x-ray of your chest that's been shown to be a very good diagnostic tool to try and work out whether people have got COVID or not. And if you have COVID, everyone is quarantined together. And so they're not in a normal hospital. They're kept under medical observation, but these are in all kinds of public spaces like gyms. They've just got a load of beds. You get all the sick people together. So obviously they've all got the same disease. They can't infect each other. They're under medical observation. So if if their condition deteriorates, they can be taken to somewhere where that care can be provided. But it just means they're separated off from the rest of the community. So one of the big problems that we have in the UK at the moment our guidelines are that if one of your household gets covid you should all lock down for 14 days you shouldn't leave the house that's that means unless you're very good very careful with hygiene around the house and if you have a large enough house you know in order to allow someone to be quarantined away from the rest of the family then it's you know if you don't have that then it's very very likely that you're going to end up infecting the other members of the household and then because you can spread this disease without having symptoms if they go out then they can potentially give it to more people and so this whole thing just spreads out of control whereas if you can take the the, the the sick people and separate them out away from everybody else that's the approach they're taking and that means that you do you know you cut off these transmission chains before they start and yeah the, the real question for me is why aren't we aiming to get it under control and do that i'm not necessarily saying that's the right approach and you know obviously the government have got access to the incredibly talented epidemiologists incredibly talented virologists public health experts that know far more about all of this stuff than you and i do but you want to understand why they're doing what they're doing and i think we need a much better communication effort from the government to explain
0: and also why they are going against who came out quite recently and said the number one strategy is test 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 and test okay. as much as you can which is what they're doing in you know numerous countries around the world they came out and said that you know social distancing should be implemented quite early on across europe we we saw school closures we saw banning of public events and in the uk we went a different way and said that we would not support mass events and we would think about closing schools so i think a lot of that came from the response early on that what the government wanted to do was was build up herd immunity uh to this and they seem to have changed slightly on what and what they want to do with that but what is herd immunity and why were they pushing it in the in the beginning so
1: my understanding i was again again this is via twitter because one of the uh, epidemiologists who advises the government put out a few tweets basically saying this herd immunity thing it's honestly it's a communications disaster because we were told that that was the strategy but what this epidemiologist said is this was never a significant component of the strategy but it was part of it but the way we were told about it made it seem like herd immunity was the aim and so just to explain what that is and why that sounds pretty crazy. The idea of herd immunity is normally used when discussing vaccines. So if you have some fraction of the population who've been vaccinated, say 90% of the population has been vaccinated, and say you've got a contagious disease, if normally that disease would be transmitted to two, three people, but every person that you bump into has been vaccinated because 90% of people have been, you're not going to pass that on no matter how many people you come in touch with whereas if obviously nobody's been vaccinated which is the case with covid because we haven't got a vaccine then it can just run wild through the population and you know the cases can double and double and double every few days so the idea behind herd immunity is to hopefully vaccinate enough people that the disease can no longer pass on as i say the problem with covid is we haven't got a vaccine and the other way you can achieve herd immunity is just if enough of the population has been exposed to that disease before so if if, say, 60% of the population had COVID, then suddenly you wouldn't really be able to pass it on in anything like the sort of wildfire way we're seeing it being transmitted now. And so it's really important if you're modelling what's going to happen next, you have to take into account the fact that as we go through this epidemic, there's there's a sort of a silver lining that people are getting infected, which is that hopefully after they're infected, they're immune. And that means they can no longer catch it. And if it were possible without, you know, without killing people, and without overwhelming the health system to infect probably somewhere between 60 and 80% of the population, then COVID would just die out naturally or at least maintain itself at a more containable level. But the reason it's crazy is precisely because in order to get 60% of people infected, we know that about 1% of people are going to die. And we know that about 20% of people are going to need hospital care. And that means that if you do, you know, if you want 60% of 60 million people times the 20% who are going to need hospital care, you literally need like tens or hundreds of times more beds than the NHS has and if you want to do that in a way that's safe to make sure we don't run out of hospital beds you need to spread those infections over years decades in order to make this possible so herd immunity as a target is a really really stupid idea and to sort of suggest that was terrible communications on the part of the government but it is a valid concept and it is an important thing to take into account when you're trying to work out what your strategy should be
0: so what they're currently putting in place is more social distancing which is a good thing Personally, I think we've just had uh, at the time of this recording, schools are shut in imminently, and to stop the spread through uh, through schools and other kind of mass events. Do you think we're heading down the line of mass quarantine? One of the downsides, I think, of mass quarantine is that instead of social distancing, where you, you know, you or physical distancing, as you like to call Mm -hmm. it, where you only kind of bump around a few people at a time, is that you could potentially get you know, in six months' time where everyone's let out again, you could see another upswelling uh, of people. So it is a I don't envy the government no. at the moment in trying trying to handle this. And I think that it's good to like you say, to be on board with with what they're doing and, and giving the backup that they need and uh, adhere to social distancing rules but obviously that's going to have a massive implication when it comes to the economy are you somehow bolstered by the fact that they have put a new budget out that supports small businesses and big businesses what do you what do you think the the kind of rollout will be going forward
1: the main criticism i've got of the government is just that their messaging is very very unclear because the strategy at the moment you know the, the, the fact that we're even trying to work out whether there are going to be lockdowns we should at least have a clear idea whether that's on the drawing board they're saying we'll rule nothing out but you know how soon is this stuff going to happen they i think that people who are criticizing them for making u-turns were being quite unfair because what they were doing is they, they told us at the start they were going to implement sort of more and more severe measures as things progressed and that's what they did it's not as though they changed their mind two days later it's that you know they updated the, the evidence and they decided they needed to go to the next stage But what's really not clear to me is how these decisions are being made like what caused us to go from the contained to the delay phase as the government called it and what's the trigger that means we're closing schools on friday rather than that we close them on today or that we closed them last week i'm not saying the decisions are wrong it's just that we haven't got the clarity and we don't know what's going to happen. And for example, in Scotland, they were told that it might that, you know the, the kids might not go back until after the summer holidays. That gives you, as a parent, I mean, obviously, that's a, that's a scary idea that you're going to have to look after your kids for all that time. How are you going to deal with work? How are you going to deal with childcare? It's a really difficult issue. But at least it gives you some degree of clarity. Whereas what we saw at the press conference yesterday was that the government said, we're going to close the schools for some time and it really is hard as a parent as a teacher as you know potentially a healthcare worker who's going to have to leave their kids at one of these schools of skeleton staff like how how long is this going to go on for how do you plan in that situation and it's much the same with the budget they basically said you know we're going to make sure that nothing bad happens but there's so much uncertainty about this at the moment and you've got to have a bit of sympathy as you you know as you say i'd hate to be in the government's position because they've got to put out these announcements and these plans have to be made so so quickly that it's impossible to get everything right and it's impossible to plan it all in advance in such a way that you can be absolutely clear with every single last detail and find you know there's always going to be a few people who are disadvantaged and it's going to take a bit of time to work through but equally i just think they need to be so so much clearer in what they're saying and who's supposed to do what and when it's going to change and what the reasons are that it's going to change rather than just saying you know we're following the science and everything's on the table
0: yeah and i think that's a a you know, a great message for for everyone, really, that words matter, communication is key, and that we have to be really on point with all of our messaging going forward. And that goes for the government, that goes for you and me and everyone on social media when spreading information, when trying to get stuff out there. There's nothing like a pandemic or a natural disaster to make sure that you have to be really, really obvious, really clear about what your messaging is because panic helps absolutely no one. I completely sympathize with people who are worried, but what I'd love is to see more clear responses from the government on what our future looks like, what they seem to be going in, uh, putting in place and what we can expect for the next six months to a year, to a year and a half. Because like you said, a, a vaccination isn't round the corner. It's at least a year to 18 months in advance. So, you know in the future what do we have to look forward to in terms of you know once we get this under control will we have a handle on all pandemics will we have a a, a case study for how we handle p- pandemics in the future
1: yeah and i think one of the things that really disappoints me is that this planning seems to be being done to such a large extent just ad hoc because as we said right at the start of this podcast this is perhaps the most predictable disaster we knew this was going to happen and although you know it's not as though the government have done no planning. let's not be entirely unfair they did have a national influenza pandemic plan that was written in 2011 and you have a look through it and I'm not suggesting this is the only again the only document they have I've not got access to their internal documents this is just what you can see publicly but it's so vague it's a really useful sort of summary of the evidence so for example they go through the evidence for school closures and they show that it's actually quite difficult to know in a flu pandemic whether closing the schools is a useful thing to do and given that you don't know epidemiologically is it going to slow down the spread of the virus there are obviously disadvantages to doing it including you know taking the children of healthcare workers for example out of school means they're going to, have to be looked after etc cetera, etc cetera. so it sort of weighs up all the evidence it looks at all the different case studies from history where people have closed schools where people have banned public events and tries to draw together the best possible evidence but It doesn't seem to make any really highly specific plans. It doesn't say if we're going to have to isolate everyone, how we are going to boost the economy? And I think what we need in this situation is just like a very clear step-by-step guide. It's not going to be perfect because every situation is going to be different, but we shouldn't have people in the Treasury, you know, desperately making up policy on the fly, trying to work out how they're going to bail out businesses and staff in order to make sure that they can, you know, make their rent. We shouldn't have this stuff just being worked out you know, immediately in the middle of a crisis when there's loads of other stuff that needs you know fires that need to be put out and obviously you know successive governments could change this plan they could revisit it every time they you know say, say a new government takes power they could have a look at this plan they could say well these bits don't really correspond to the you know platform on which we were elected and we'd like to change it a little bit but i just think it needs to be automated because so many of these decisions are being made by people who are you know and inevitably when organizations make these decisions they're days or weeks behind the news as well so everything's just moving a lot more slowly than if we'd really planned for this in advance
0: again communication is key preparation is key and i would hope that going forward that we're going to get more clarification and good information so i just encourage everyone to be clear about what they what they're spreading not in terms of the <laughs> virus an unfortunate pun, but in terms of the information knowing that it's true before they get it out there Andrew's a biologist who's currently working on a book all about the biology of aging out early next year, previously working as a computational biologist in the Francis Crick Institute. Andrew Steele, thanks so much. (laughs) Thank you. So we're going to be working hard over the next few months at Enteropod to make sure that we come out with some great podcasts and also videos that will not only show how stuff works, but why it works in the way that it does. We're going to be speaking to hopefully the, the, the best and the brightest that we have here in Wales and, and around the world for, for really cracking open the ins and outs of why things work in the way that they do. Take a look at interapod.com for more.